All right, well, earlier Rick read 1 Corinthians 15 for us, kind of gives us a simple snapshot of the gospel. The gospel, of course, we know is that Christ died, was crucified on the cross, was buried, and he rose again. And then, of course, he went out and let others, others know that he rose from the grave. And today we're going to talk about what I've entitled gospel stories. And I'll start here with this right here. I thought this was kind of interesting. The business consultant claims the best story wins. This is why by Morgan Housel. Uh, a truth that applies to many fields which can frustrate some as much as it energizes others is that the person who tells the most compelling story wins, not who has the best idea or the right answer. Um, for example, the Civil War is probably the most well-documented period in American history. There are thousands of books analyzing every conceivable angle, chronicling every possible detail. But in 1990, Ken Burns' Civil War documentary became an instant phenomenon with 39 million viewers and winning 40 major film awards. As many Americans watched Ken Burns' Civil War in 1990 as watched the Super Bowl that year. And all he did, not to minimize it because it's such a feat, is to take 130-year-old existing information and wove it into a very good story. It's the same for writer Bill Bryson. His books fly off the shelves, <clears throat> which I understand drives the little-known academics who uncovered the things he writes about crazy. His latest book is basically an anatomy textbook. It has no new information, no discoveries, but it's so well-written, he tells such a good story that it became an instant bestseller. This drives you crazy if you assume the world is swayed by facts and objectivity, if you assume the best idea wins. The novelist Richard Powers summarized it this way, the best arguments in the world won't change a single person's mind. The only thing that can do that is a good story. So we're going to start there today, and I suppose you could take his arguments and argue that maybe, no pun intended, but you could argue that maybe he's a little oversimplified things or overgeneralized things. There are probably those people in the world today that the facts, I mean, the data will, will be enough for them, and they won't be, be swayed by any kind of compelling story as long as they have all the data. But I think I understand that a well-told story will outperform our best arguments in most people's lives and on most occasions. And that's where this key verse for our series comes in here. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so even if you have all the facts on your side, you have to understand something, that here's the truth. You will seldom argue someone into heaven. You seldom are going to argue someone into heaven, but a compelling story might just get them there. You can have all the data and all the rational reasons, but without a compelling story told with gentleness and respect, your arguments will most likely fall on deaf ears. And this is the beauty of the Bible, because I will contend the Bible has a very compelling story. Like the Bible is not just a bunch of facts and information and religious dogma. It has actually a very compelling story. It's a compelling story that meets us where we are and answers life's deepest questions. There really is no other book like the Bible. And so we're in week five of our series, Defending the Faith, right? Rational answers to a reasonable faith. Is it, is it rational to believe in the Bible? Is it rational? Uh, I mean, is it reasonable to believe in the Bible? Is it reasonable to, to believe the gospel? And we've talked about, as I said, God, the word, creation, and today we're going to talk about a most compelling gospel. A compelling gospel. And when you think about stories today, really, what are the components of a story? Normally, there is a villain, there is a victim, and there is a hero. 
And well, that's the Bible, right? The villain is Satan, the victim is you and I, and the hero who comes to solve a huge problem, of course, is Jesus the Christ. He comes to solve our sin, death, and hell problem. And so that is really what you find in a story. And maybe that's an oversimplified view of it, but that does kind of give us a snapshot of the gospel. Something else about stories that I think really relates back to the Bible. You ever watch a story, you watch a movie, and you get done, and then someone says, oh, you know what? That was a true story. Well, oh, wow, it's a true story. And it makes the story that was good even better, even more powerful, because, wow, that really happened. That was a true story. And that's exactly what we have with the scriptures. It's a compelling story, and it's true, and it really, really happened. You know, I've seen this similar testimony many times. Maybe you've heard of it. Someone who's even maybe antagonistic towards God and someone who is, is just really struggling and they don't believe in God and for the first time they open up the scriptures and they just start reading about Jesus and they get converted, but not just converted. They're like visibly moved by what they read in the pages of scripture and they're so, so drawn to his compelling life that they actually come to know Christ as their savior. I think that is so powerful and it's a lesson for us. Here's our big idea today. Learning how to tell the story of the Bible can be as important as knowing all the theological dogma. Think about that. Let's let that sink in. Learning how to tell the story of the Bible can be as important as knowing all the theological dogma. I mean, we can know all sorts of biblical theology and doctrine. We can lay all the facts down and we can win every argument. But if we do not know how to tell the simple story of the Bible with gentleness and respect, as Peter says, and, and convey God's love through it, we will be left missing the mark. Now listen, I, to be sure, I'm not saying an emotional story is more important than the theological truth. I'm not saying that. And I'm also not saying that we are more important than the Holy Spirit. That person who stumbles onto the scriptures for the first time reads it and is visibly moved and comes to Christ, that's the power of the Holy Spirit, working through the pages of scripture. But I am saying, what I am saying here is that the story of the Bible is a compelling story and I think the reason Jesus was so successful, so has had such a powerful ministry is he told a compelling story and he got people's attention and, and, and he just hit them in their heart with the beauty of the gospel. You know, one other, one other thing about the story of the Bible this morning before we get into this, and there's a uniqueness to it. How many uh, remember these two individuals, right? A lot of us remember them going back to the 90s, probably. I think they've been around that long. Sunday morning values, Saturday morning fun. That's, of course, back when we watched cartoons every Saturday morning. And so they were taking the Sunday morning values of Sunday school and attaching them with Saturday morning cartoon fun. And, but what did the VeggieTales do? They told what? Bible stories. Plural. Bible stories. And that's kind of fat. That's a really unique thing and powerful thing about the Bible is that somehow the Bible is many stories all telling one big story. That's just, that's just amazing. And, and I shared this a few weeks ago because it is really, really, really powerful when you think about how this works, how this works out. Think about the implications of this, right? The Bible is composed of 66 books by 40 different authors written over 1,500 years sharing the exact same meta narrative. And that's, that's really powerful. Like you might watch a movie, a sitcom today, right? You'll watch a 30-minute sitcom and they'll have four scenes in that sitcom and they all kind of tie into the same story and teach the same lesson or whatever, drive home the same point. Okay, so you got one guy who sat down and wrote a script for a play and he had four scenes line up. Here you have people, you have 40 different people writing 66 different books over 1,500 years and they all tell the exact same story. 
That is an amazing thing and something that I would say is actually humanly impossible. And this is another one of the bigger arguments for the validity of the Bible. The fact that all the smaller stories work together to tell the big story and to point to Christ. So that makes the Bible so incredibly amazing. Today what we're going to do is we're going to zero in on that big story. But we're going to look at three gospel stories that all help to tell the central story. And I hope in the process we can see how compelling the story of the Bible actually is. Actually is. And again, learning how to tell the story of the Bible can be, not saying it is always, but can be as important as knowing all the theological dogma. We need to know the story here is a very, very compelling story. So three gospel stories today, finding the story among the stories. And we'll start with this story right here, the story of Christ. And this would be kind of the central story, right? The, the, the gospel story is the story of Christ. It is the central story. It's, it's the one big story in all of Scripture. <clears throat> and what does Christ mean? If you want to just kind of zero in here for, for a minute, Christ in the Bible refers to the Messiah or the anointed one. Jesus is kind of the human name for the Messiah or anointed one. Jesus came to earth, walked the earth. His name was Jesus. That's his kind of his earthly name. Christ is his eternal name from time past and for all time. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He was the one that was promised to Abraham and Eve and uh, uh, Abraham and Eve. <laughs> Abraham and the Jews and Adam and Eve. Going back even before Abraham. How about that? Didn't know those characters were in the Bible. But uh, this, and here again is what is so amazing, right? Because again, all the Old Testament stories and characters point to Christ. All of them do. Noah and his boat, Abraham and his promises, Moses and his exodus, Ruth and her redeeming husband, Esther in her time, and David and his giant, all of them point us to Christ. They work together to tell that grander story of Christ. And again, this is why we say that the Bible is a God-breathed, God-inspired book because again, that's humanly impossible for all of these individuals, all these different people over all these years telling the exact same story. Now, we could go here, many stories to start out here, but we're gonna go to the Old Testament, to the Exodus, to tell the story of Christ here in a kind of unusual way. And uh, I, I wanna tell you this story about the water in the rock. Because this is the most recent one that I discovered where I found Christ in the story in ways that I had never seen him before. Here we are in Exodus 17. The Israelites have just left, uh, left Egypt and left Pharaoh and left slavery. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're heading for the promised land. They're all excited and yet they're having a bad day because they're thirsty. So they begin to complain to Moses that they need something to drink. And we pick it up here in Exodus 17, 4. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord told, said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with you which you struck in the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place uh, Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So just take note here that Moses struck the rock and it poured out water. So in this instance, the Jews get their water, their thirst is satisfied and all is well. Now we, we fast forward. Now we're on the other side of the promised land because this is gonna happen again. This is like two stories that make one story that tell the grand story of Christ. 
And so they're on the other side of the promised land. What I mean by that is they've come to the promised land and then in faith they wouldn't go in. They wouldn't claim God's promise and so what did, they, what did God do? God said, okay, you're gonna wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Basically, most of this generation, you're not getting into the promised land because you didn't believe me and have faith in me. Your children were, you're, you're, you're the, the generation of your children in 40 years, they'll go into the promised land but not you. So here we are again. Water from the rock, Numbers 20. So now they're, they're wandering in the wilderness here. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared to them and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, so here are the people again, they're complaining. If you haven't picked up on it, they're thirsty, they want something to drink. And they're complaining to Moses and so again, Moses and Aaron and Moses, no, Moses and Aaron both, I never caught that before, Moses and Aaron both go to the Lord here. They're both implicated in what unfolds. Take the staff, says God, and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron and your brothers, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Note the difference. This time, you're just gonna speak to the rock. Last time you struck it. Now you're just gonna tell the rock. Okay, he goes on. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. <laughs> this is Moses. Can you just hear him chewing out the people of Israel? Hear now, you rebels. Shall we, bring, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice and water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and through them he showed himself holy. And so here, of course, he was told to speak to the rock to produce water, not strike it. Moses, in his frustration, didn't listen to God's instruction. He hits the rock twice like the previous time. And there are some common questions that emerge here. People have like, okay, why was God so harsh on Moses or harsh with Moses? Like, I mean, give him a break. He's like leading these people out of the exodus. It's been a challenging thing. And right now, in the heat of the moment, he loses his cool. And like, God's so hard on him. Why? Well, I'll tell you in a minute why he was so hard and why it was imperative, actually imperative that God punish him as he did. It will be kind of surprising. The second question, though, then, is what did Moses and Aaron really do wrong? Was it because he said, shall we bring water out of this rock? Like, you know, it's kind of like, and I used to think he was talking about, shall me and God bring water out of this rock? Now I'm thinking maybe he's thinking, should me and Aaron bring water out of this rock? Like, he, maybe it's he's punished because he's just assuming God's glory in this moment but that's not why he's punished the reason he is punished is indeed because he struck the rock but what is that what, what why is that such an issue is it his anger well no the answer actually is found in the new testament because these two incidents tell the grander story of Christ. And, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul was teaching the Corinthians about Christ, and he uses the Exodus as an illustration. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, the Red Sea, the miracle. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ wow 
So now you, you learned something, didn't you? Back in the Old Testament, that rock was a symbol of Christ. It symbolized the central story of the Bible, Christ. Like he was the water. He's the living water coming out of the rock. He's the rock that is the foundation for our life. But again, why was this such a big deal to God? Well, here's, what, here's why he was so harsh with Moses. Here's what Moses did. Moses messed with the symbolism and messed up the story of Christ. Do you know how he did that? How did he mess with the symbolism and mess up the story of Christ? Because he struck the rock the first time and struck it the second time and there's the problem. We find it in Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he, Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And God was struck for us on the cross. He was, he, he took a serious death blow on the cross, but he took that death blow one time. Christ was crucified, strunk once, and is called on thereafter. Isn't that amazing? Just right there in the Old Testament. In two little incidents. We, you can read that a hundred times and not catch that. And somebody did. Someone passed it on to me. You can study it out and find there are others that have discovered this. What a powerful, powerful truth. Christ was crucified. He was struck once and now he's called on thereafter. And this is exactly why it was so important that God tell the people, Moses got that wrong. Because that's not the gospel. Christ is not repeatedly crucified for our sins. He was crucified once. If you remember, actually, the compelling story here in John chapter four, Jesus meets the woman at the well and he tells her, I can give you living water that will satisfy you. In John chapter seven, he says that when the Holy Spirit comes to live in your heart, he'll be like, like, like a fountain of living water that will just erupt within you forever. And maybe there are people in your life, you know, there are people all around us, right, that are spiritually thirsty, and we need to tell them, you know what, Christ was crucified for you, and all you have to do is call on the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. I mean, he did all the work. He was crucified once, now we just call on him. We just come to him, we just believe and receive. We just receive his forgiveness. We receive his life. We believe he was, cru- he was, he was struck for us. What an amazing, an amazing thing. So Jesus is the living water that satisfies our spiritual thirst. And we need to tell our friends this, this, is, this is a compelling story in a world today that is thirsty, 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 thirsty for what they don't even know, like the woman at the well. And Jesus is the rock we can build our life on, just like the wise man in Jesus' parable, right? The wise man built his, build his house on the rock. The foolish man built his house on the sand. Jesus is the rock we can build our life on. And why is he the living water? And why is the, the rock we can build our life on? All because he was struck. Because he went to the cross and was struck and was smitten and took that death blow for you and me. And out of his life comes living water, and he is the rock that you will either build your life on or he will be the stumbling block that you trip over because he is the only way to the Father. The only way to the Father. Learning to tell the story of the Bible can be as important as knowing all the theological dogma. We can know all the facts and information, but can you tell a compelling story? Can you take him to the woman at the well? Can you take him back to the Old Testament? Can you just give the... This is the passionate way that I preach every Sunday because... This is such a compelling story. Here's the second lesson. Hebrews eleven six. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I want to tell you a second story. It's also in the Old Testament, but this is the story of faith. 
This is the story of faith, and we just read there in Hebrews 11, 6, the great faith chapter, that it's impossible to please God. It is apart from faith. What that means, it's impossible to live in relationship and communion with God apart from faith. And again, this is going to tie back into the central story of Christ. Now, here's the, here's the, the, the thing. Um, one constant throughout the Bible is that we can only live in a right relationship with God through faith. That verse just is seen throughout the scriptures. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you the story of faith today through the story of Noah. Through the story of Noah. Hebrews 11:7, very next verse here in Hebrews. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Hmm. And so here we see Noah was a man of faith. There is a righteousness, a right standing with God that only comes through faith. And we today understand this in regards of the cross, but before the cross, they expressed their faith in different ways as God had established. So, Noah by faith we see took God at his word, believed what he said, and built the ark. And Noah did this while most of the world thought he was a crazy man and uh, had never seen it rain before. The thing is, the story of Noah and the ark helps us tell the grander story of Christ. It helps us understand the story of the Bible. It can give us some different aspects of the gospel here. First thing it can do is help us with a common myth. There's a common myth this story can help us understand, and that's the fact that the Old Testament God is not the same as the New Testament God. That somehow the God of the Old Testament is irrational, vindictive, hateful, vengeful. You know, he's a God of hate. And then, of course, Jesus is a God of love. And somehow people today want to pit the two against each other. How in the world do you pit the Father against the Son? The Son's just like the Father. They're, they're actually the same, and this story can, can tell us, really, how can the God, the Father, not be the same as God the Son? They're, they're, they're the same family. The Father, like Jesus, is merciful and gracious, and this is so often missed. What most people don't understand, this has really fascin- always been fascinating to me, so from Genesis 1, the first sin of Adam and Eve, to the great flood here in Genesis 6, that's 1,500 years. That's like 1,500 years have gone by. Woo! Just like that. And basically what you have to understand is that God really is basically down to his last righteous man. The flood was God's last resort. What's God's goal throughout the whole scripture? It's to tell the story of Christ. You have to understand something. Without the flood, there'd be no story of Christ. Jesus would have never made it into the world. The world would have just ended. There was one righteous man left, Noah. God took Noah and his family and put them on the ark and saved them and had them start over and had them replenish this whole world. God, throughout the Old Testament, is, is noted as being a God of mercy and grace. People struggle with this because like all the killing in the Old Testament and the times that God, that, that God will like tell the Israelites to eradicate all their, their, all, all their enemies, you know, like in a nation, like all, even the women and children, just wipe them all out. And it seems like people can't, understand that it's so hateful it's so but god was doing what was 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 in the best interest of all mankind and to keep the story of the bible alive and to keep christ you know the royal lineage of christ intact and so god always waited i mean he waited as a last resort he would step in and he would intervene in the affairs of men and 
he would bring judgment on the world to preserve righteousness. We see God's mercy, though, in the story here of the flood. For instance, Genesis 7, 1, this is interesting. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth. So basically, Noah and his family went into the ark seven days before it started to rain. There was a seven-day interval there. We see this later on, the same chapter in Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. What's the significance of this? Basically, what God was doing was giving everyone a seven-day grace period to enter the ark. Like for seven days, the, the doors of the ark are open there and the animals have come in and the people are all up and, and everybody's just doubling down on their open rebellion of God. And they're probably mocking Noah for seven days, but the, but the doors are open. Anybody can get in the ark that wants to. And on the seventh day, God slams that door shut and it starts raining and a whole bunch of people probably said, what's that? Oops. I suppose by the second or third day and the water started to rise, people were like, oopsie, do over. But you see the mercy of God even in this moment. Genesis 6, 5 through 6. Note this, this is really interesting too. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord God regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. You know what else is amazing? Watch this. Adam and Eve, they sin in the Garden of Eden. They wreck God's perfect creation. Cain rises up in the next, like chapter four, and, and kills Abel. And we, we go 1,500 years into the future and now God has to wipe the world out with a flood. You know what you never find one time in Scripture? That God was angry at man. He wasn't angry at the flood, he was grieved. I mean, grief, we all admit grief is different than anger. Grief is like sadness. Never tells us at any point here that God was angry at mankind. He was grieved, he was sad he made them, he was sad for himself. He was sad for the creation that he made and all the grief they were encountering. That's the truth. And there's a misconception, I think, that is here that somehow God is angry at creation. I think God is angry at sin and angry at Satan. And, and the point is, if you have never been forgiven of your sin, Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, but if you have not given your sins to Christ and received his righteousness and life, if you're still bearing your sin, then when he pours out wrath on sin, he'll pour out wrath on you. Not because he wants to, not because he's angry at you, but because you are an object of wrath, because you have sin. That's the story. Now, back to Noah again, though. So understand this. All of this story about Noah, though, Noah, in the midst of all this, he received the grace and mercy and favor of God. Everybody else could have, but they rejected it. But Noah did. Why did Noah receive the grace and mercy and favor of God? Because of faith. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, land, man, and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why did Noah find favor in the eyes of the Lord? Did Noah find favor because he built an ark for God? Because he worked real hard? No, he found favor because he had faith. He had 
faith. In fact, the, the truth is, Noah was counted righteous and demonstrated faith before he built the ark. It's easy to look at this great ark he built and, oh, Noah is so obedient, he is so faithful, he worked so hard for God and God saved him. No. God asked him to build the ark because he was a man of faith because God knew he would build it. Because God knew what was, he knew the kind of person that Noah was. It's really powerful. And so he gets the opportunity here to replenish the entire earth. You know, it tells us actually, this is what I think is fascinating. How many think that Noah received a blessing in this, in this sense? Building the ark was actually a blessing. Yeah, he was ridiculed and he was mocked and he was, but what a blessing that he got to build the ark of God, that he got to replenish the entire earth and start all things over. And God calls us to task sometimes and sometimes they're hard and sometimes they're challenging, but they are a blessing to be able to serve God, to be able to do great things for God. What an incredible blessing. You know, the Bible tells us that Noah was not only a builder of boats, he was also a preacher of righteousness. He was telling the compelling story of God's love the entire time. He was probably on the ark with the doors open saying, hey, anybody else want to come? The doors are still open. There's still time to get right with God and get on the ark. What an amazing thing. Now, there's an important theological truth that's embedded in this whole story that I'm kind of driving at here. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So he received grace and favor, Noah did from God through faith. Not through his works, not through building an ark, simply because he trusted God. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God preferred beforehand that we should walk in them. So understand something here that's really important. Faith is not a work. It simply enables us to work. Like there is, a, there is a segment today of Christianity, <clears throat> they're the ones that believe more in the concept like God elects, like God chose everybody over here to be saved and he gave them his spirit and faith and grace and everything and he just ignored all of you and you're just all going to hell because he ignored you. But he, but he did choose to save you, he elected you and, and I, of course we don't believe that. We, we believe God died for everybody in this room and loved everybody in this room and he offers to everybody in this room but the people that believe this, they believe, well, faith is a work. So if, 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 I'm ha- if I show faith, if I believe, that's a, well, that's not a work. Believing is not a work. Believing that God loves me and just, just deciding I'm going to get on the ark, that's not a work. Noah wasn't saved by work, but he had faith in God. But that wasn't a work. He just believed. He trusted in God. And then, but know what that verse says, right? It says, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Like, I'm not saved by my good works, but I'm created to do good works. And so, faith enables me to go out and build a, an ark for God. It enables me to do great works for God. That's the reality. I'm not saved by my work, but it, enab- it enables me to work. And Abraham was counted righteous before he built the ark, but once he was counted righteous, then he was able to go out and build this incredible ark. Now, Ephesians 2, there's one other thing here in the story of Noah just to see that shows us the beauty of the gospel that's so powerful. Ephesians 2 picks up on it. A couple of verses later in Ephesians 2 here, remember that you, okay, this is before they were saved by grace through faith, remember that you were at that time separated, excuse me, from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once 
once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So they were in the world, but now they're in Christ Jesus, and that's the picture of Noah and the ark. There's two people in, there's two people in the story, those that are in the ark and those that are in the world. If you're in the, in the world, you're destined for judgment and destruction. If you're in Christ, you're destined for glory. And the, the beautiful thing about the story of Noah just shows us that when you're in the ark and you're sealed in that ark and that door is shut by God, it's slammed shut, you ain't getting off that ark until you reach glory one day. And so no one got off that ark until they got to the new world and that's you and me in Christ We can't lose our salvation. Nothing can take us out of Christ. We are in Christ. He has sealed us in, secured us until we reach glory. That is is the incredible story of truth. So the ark symbolizes those who are in Christ versus those who are in the world. And you know that term in Christ, it's fascinating. You find it like 80 to 90 times in the New Testament. It's all over the New Testament, primarily used by the Apostle Paul. The Bible is again proving the Bible and we see in the great story here the eternal security we have in Christ that we cannot lose our salvation. Live with with that hope every day. Live with that reality every day that you're secure in Christ that no matter how much you may struggle in life God will never let go of you. And you see Noah didn't save himself. He didn't save himself by building the ark. He was counted righteous. He had faith that enabled him to build the ark for God's glory. But it was God who saved Noah because Noah trusted him to save him. Again, learning to tell, learning how to tell the story of the Bible can be as important as knowing all the theological dogma. Can you tell a compelling story? Can you just go to the scriptures and say, look at the story of Noah. Look at, at the passionate uh, response of Noah and all the people involved in that story and how things played out. I have a third story this morning. This one's a little different. But what I'm going to do here as we close in this last story is just give you a grand overview of the Bible. I'm going to talk about something that I probably don't talk about enough because I don't think we fully understand this concept. And so I think when you understand the concept, maybe it will make more sense to you. But here's our third story. It's the story of grace. It's the story of grace, and this is the dispensational story. So we talk sometimes about the Bible having dispensations. I don't think most people understand what that means. So if I explain it, maybe you'll say, oh, okay, I understand what you're talking about now. That makes a little more sense. And I'm going to show you how simple and practical this idea of dispensationalism is and how it tells the grander story of Christ. Okay, so watch this in in Scripture. What is a dispensation? It is God's character plus the expression of our faith. So throughout the Bible, God reveals his character to us, and then throughout the Bible, we express our faith in God. And that was done at different times in different ways. That will be very clear here as we walk through this. You'll see that. Again, what is a dispensation? It's an administration. Okay, that's one word that is sometimes, some translations use an administration. Like you have the Trump administration, and they had certain... They had certain laws they imposed on like, you know, illegal immigration. You got the Biden administration. They have certain laws they they put out on illegal immigration. Two two different laws, two different administrations, two different presidencies. Things are done differently in each. That's kind of what we see in the Bible. And then another way is that it's the way that God dispenses the gospel or the good news. It's the way God tells his compelling story throughout the Bible. He tells it differently at different times. Also, we can understand who he is and come into a right relationship with him. So, I'll walk you through these real briefly. Innocence, first dispensation, innocence. And God made Adam and Eve innocent. Well, there you go. And how did they walk in relationship and fellowship with God? They just walked in the garden. They just didn't sin. 
And the minute they sinned, what happened? Well, they were no longer in a right relationship with God. And they couldn't relate to God anymore. Now, note something about each of these dispensations. Every one you'll see ends in a judgment or a curse. And Adam and Eve's curse is they're expelled from the garden. So no longer they're no longer in the communion of the garden with God. Now they're outside the garden in the wilderness. of the, They're no longer in Christ. They're now in the world. Second dispensation then is conscience. This is Cain and Abel. Now we know right from wrong. And so now how do we relate to God? How do we walk in fellowship with God? By trusting our conscience. By doing what's right, not what's wrong. And of course, that worked real well, right? Because Cain killed Abel. First thing that happens, Cain kills Abel. This, this dispensation ends with the judgment of the worldwide flood. I mean, this is how well the conscience of man worked to live in relationship with God. By Genesis 6, he has to wipe the whole world out because it didn't work. You come to the third dispensation, human government. This is seen in Noah. After the flood, after Noah's back, then he starts to institute a civil government. There's things like, like capital punishment is instituted. There's different uh, issues in this area where we relate to God through our human government. And of course, we know how well this works, right? Like either we fail the human government or the human government fails us. But as far as living in relationship with God through a human government... Yeah, it didn't work very well. And this ends at the Tower of Babel when God takes everybody at the Tower of Babel. They're building this tower to heaven. You know why they're building the tower to heaven? Because if God's going to have another flood, they're going to climb up that tower and they're going to be spared from the flood. Well, that didn't work very well. And so God took them and he confused their languages and he spread them all over the world and said, enough of that. We come to the fourth dispensation. This is, these are all the ways God's dispensing the good news, dispensing the gospel, how we are expressing faith in God throughout the, throughout the Bible. Promise comes to, comes to Abraham. It says, okay, Abraham, here's all these promises. I'll make you a great nation. The, the chief promise is I'll send you a Messiah. All you have to do to walk in relationship with me is believe in my promises. How well did this work? Well, we saw it earlier. Why was Israel wandering in the wilderness? Because when they got to the promised land, they didn't take God's promises. They didn't believe Him. They didn't trust Him. And so the curse here, the judgment here, is they're wandering in the wilderness because just just believing in God's promises failed. We come to the next dispensation, law. How does man walk in a right relationship with God? How do we express our faith? Well, we adhere to the... 603 civil, ceremonial, sacrificial laws. We, we adhere to the 10 moral laws. That's how we walk in a relationship with God. Did that work? Well, of course not. What happened? <laughs> they crucified Christ. This ends with the one who satisfied the law with the curse of the crucifixion. They didn't, this didn't help mankind live in a relationship with God, did it? No. This is why I often say today, and hopefully this helps when we say today we're not under the law. What it means is we're not under the law as a system to express our faith in God. We don't walk in a right relationship with God through the law. We'll see how we do that momentarily. But the, but the reality is the law did not work as a system to walk in a right... In fact, I'll give you another, another way to understand this dispensational thing. So how about the law? Was Noah and Abraham under the law? Well, of course not. Law wasn't even here. See, they were under different dispensations. So we come today to grace. 
And we're under what's called the dispensation of grace today. It's found in Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Some translations call it an administration. Some call it a stewardship. The most literal rendering is a dispensation, but most people don't know what a dispensation is. So we're in this dispensation of grace today. And so the point of all of this, to understand all of this, is that all of these dispensations end in failure. And they would today. Like God can make you perfectly innocent like Adam and Eve. One sin, what happened to them? They're out of fellowship with God. But see, today under grace, I sin every day. (laughs) And I'm never out of fellowship with God because Christ went to the cross and, and, and he took care of my sin problem past, present, and future. So innocent, innocence doesn't work. And a conscience, listen, you and I, we defy, we deny our conscience all the time. We struggle with sin. We struggle with our conscience. How about, like I said, the human government? It fails us, we fail it. Promises, do you, let me ask you a question, do you ever doubt God's promise? Have you ever in your life doubted God's promises? Like, Doubted that God loves you. Doubted that God works all things together for good. Doubted that, you know, we all at times go through life when we, we know what the Bible, we know the promises, but we're in a season of life where we're just kind of doubting. I don't know, Lord. You promised me this, but I don't know. You seem so distant. Where are you? Promises fail. And the law, who can keep the law perfectly? Nobody can, except Christ. Nobody can but Christ. So we're in this age of grace. And the point of grace, well, ask you this question here. What's, how does this dispensation end in a curse? Where's the curse that ends the dispensation of grace? There isn't one. There's no curse. This dispensation ends with the blessing of the rapture, when God takes us off the face of the earth. Here's what it says in 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do not want you to be be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So the dead are going to rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, with all the dead. So the dead are with him, and now we're with him in the air, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And what's the last thing he says here? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So if you live today, if you live today in the fear that, oh, maybe I'm going through the tribulation period, maybe I'm going to encounter the mark of the beast, maybe I'm going to encounter those, that when God pours out his wrath on the earth, you're not. Because God poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross, and if you've received him, he's not going to pour his wrath out on you, because you don't have any sin. He has taken your sin. He has made you one of his own. Encourage one another with these words. And so here's the beautiful thing about this dispensation, why I call it the story of grace. Every dispensation ends in failure and ends in curse except for grace. And grace never fails us. Why? Because Christ works. Because Christ does the work. And when it's all about Christ, when he does all the work, it doesn't fail. 
when it's dependent upon my conscience or my obedience or my whatever, when I'm expressing my faith through what I do, it never works. When I express my faith simply through what Christ did, that's grace. And that, my friends, is where we're at today. The dispensations end with a curse and judgment except for the age of grace, which ends with the blessings of the rapture because it's all about what Christ did. And the point of the Bible is every one of these stories, every one of these dispensations, and all of this is pointing to what? To Christ, the one who did the work that no man could ever do. Wow. What an amazing, what an amazing, what an amazing thing. Grace never fails because Christ always works. And that is the story of Christ. Now, what do we learn today? Before I give you one last closing thought, we learn today that there are lots of stories telling one big story. And that story is the story of Christ. He is the living water and only he can satisfy our spiritual thirst. We learn that God is extremely patient, full of mercy and grace. We learn that there is freedom, redemption, rescue, and security in Christ and in Christ alone, a security that we can never lose. We then learn that that there is indeed a grace that we can know. Grace is at the heart of the story of Christ and we access this grace by faith. Oh, and this faith is not a work, but it does enable and empower us to do God's work. Learning how to tell, we ultimately saw this, that learning how to tell the story of the Bible can be as important as knowing all the theological dogma. In an an apologetic series where we're getting all the arguments down and learning how to defend our faith and why do I have hope, we need to understand that the Bible's more than just a bunch of dogma and facts and information. It's a compelling story of God's incredible grace, of God working through our simple belief and our simple faith and just trusting him to do all the work. It's the compelling story of Christ. Today we access God's grace and hope through faith in Christ and the cross. Today how do we exercise our faith? Through, the, through Christ and the cross. It's simply it, through the work that he did, not any of the work that we might do. So let me leave you with this this morning. Just think about this, Okay. We need to see this in closing. Just as Noah and Moses, Abraham and David, Daniel and Ruth, just as all of those individuals walked by faith and helped to tell the story of Christ, so can you. Your life is no different than Moses or Noah's. It's no different. They are everyday people like you and me who lived compelling lives and told the compelling story of Christ and we can do the same. All we have to do is believe in God and by faith we can bring Him glory. We can simply live compelling lives. My life story can be as compelling as Noah's or Moses's or even Ruth's. At one point I was going to get into Ruth's story today. We didn't. But all those individuals live compelling lives and we can too and we can tell the incredible story of Christ. In fact, I I need to let God use my story in order to tell his. I need to do that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the message of scriptures that it's all about what you did at the cross. It all goes back to you. And, and after so much failure and so much, 
we continually see throughout the scripture in light of all of that failure and all of those curses and all, we continually see your character shine through. Your mercy and your grace and your love shines throughout the entirety of scripture. And then we come to, to where we're at today and we come to the cross and we realize that we come to the cross because you were struck. You were struck once on the cross. You took that death blow one time and today we just come and we just call on the name of the Lord and we're saved. What a beautiful reality. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And Lord, help us to walk every day in faith and Lord, I don't know what it is you're calling us to do, but may we know that maybe we're not called to build an ark, but we're called to do something for you. And the, and the, and the faith that has uh, basically allowed us to exercise and receive your grace, the, the faith that has opened the door to your grace, Lord, I just, I just pray, Lord, today that you will help us walk every day in faith and, and do a mighty work for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.